Our scripture this morning is from Mark 3, uh, 20 to 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, <clears throat> he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed may plunder his house. Today I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came. <clears throat> And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dean. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Disciples Church. How are we doing? Good. So my name is Dave Hahn, for those of you who don't know me, and I am incredibly privileged, as always, to be able to open God's Word with you this morning. So one of the TV shows that our son Seth enjoys watching, he's recently gotten into it, is a show called Hell's Kitchen with Gordon Ramsay. As a result, Sheila and I have kind of gotten into it as well. If you're not familiar with it, there is a lot of yelling. Now, it's not all that that show is about. It's a reality show about a group of cooks who are fighting for the chance to become the head chef at one of Gordon Ramsay's restaurants. And week by week, the chefs get eliminated until ultimately there is one winner, one future head chef. And there are a series of challenges that the cooks need to go through to kind of prove their mettle, to prove that they have what it takes to be head chef. And one of those challenges during a recent episode, each cook needed to make their signature dish. And each cook had that signature dish put to a test through a blind taste test. And that panel of food taste testers were made up of their family members but none of their family members knew which dish belonged to their loved ones. And the cooks had to sit idly by and watch as their loved ones tried each of these dishes and then vote for their favorites. Which means that some of the cooks had to watch their loved ones eat a dish and not vote for them in turn, putting them at risk of being eliminated. Now, because I'm a bit of an odd individual, I love how twisted this challenge was. I loved it. 
Now, I suppose there could have been in that group some family members who would recognize the cooking style of their loved ones and as such vote for their loved one's dish or vote against somebody else's dish. But think about it from the contestant's perspective. If people voted against you on purpose or voted against you accidentally, the result is still the same. You're going home and you're not gonna be head chef. Having to watch your loved one vote against something that you have made cannot be easy because we expect the people that we're closest to to recognize our work. And when they go against us, it's disheartening. In today's reading, we find Jesus coming up against the opposition of his enemies and people who wanted to see Jesus eliminated, as it were. Three chapters into the book of Mark, this idea is not new, but what is new is that for the first time we see opposition from those who are supposed to know and love Jesus best to try to stop him from what he came to do. Beginning in verse 20 of Mark 3, we read, Then he went home, he being Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Jesus and his disciples came down from the mountain where Jesus chose the 12, and they went back to where they were staying, and the crowds gathered again. Crowds that were so large and so demanding that there was no room and there was no time for Jesus and his disciples to eat. And something about that bothered Jesus' family. Verse 21, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. That is an incredible verse to hear, considering who we now know Jesus to be. Now, I think there are at least two good questions to ask about this one verse. First, what is meant by the word family? And two, why did they think Jesus was out of his mind? So let's look at that first question. What is meant by the word family? Is it what we think it is? The King James version of of this verse and the New King James version of this verse translate that section as his own people. So rather than family, it reads his own people. In the message, it's translated as his friends. So we have his family, we have his own people, and we have his friends. So very likely, the word that the ESV translate as family in these verses contains, in part, his biological family. They certainly show up later in these passages that we're going to read, but in a truer, broader sense, it likely means those closest to him. You see, like you and I, Jesus had people he was close to both in and outside of his family of origin. People that he grew up with who knew and loved him before he became as popular as he was. And they were the ones who went to seize him. They were the ones that thought that he was out of his mind. Can anyone else relate to what Jesus is going through in verse 21? Certainly not exactly what he was experiencing, but through our close association with Jesus, we can understand a little bit of what's happening. For some of us, when we became Christ's disciples, the people we were closest to didn't take it very well. They weren't very excited. They didn't rejoice with us. Maybe their reaction was volatile. 
And today, they're not quite sure what to make of our life in Christ. Here's how 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18 talks about that reaction. It says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those still dead in sin, Jesus' death on the cross is foolish, maybe even stupid, and at worst, it is inconsequential to their daily lives. So why would they be glad? Why would they rejoice? But for us who believe, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is everything. It is the gospel to which we have been saved, to which we are being saved, and to which we will be saved. And like Paul, we cannot be ashamed of it. In the gospel, we have found the most valuable of pearls, and we ought to be willing to give up everything for it, including, if necessary, the affections of others, the affections of our loved ones. So if your faith in Christ and your identity in him has brought about the confusion of others at best or the rejection of others at worst, it should hurt at a human level. It hurt Jesus. On the other hand, it really shouldn't surprise you because it happened to Jesus. And if it happened to Jesus, it can and likely will happen to us. Listen to Jesus' words in John 15. Speaking to his disciples, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Friends, what it means to love and follow Jesus Christ is becoming more and more out of touch and more and more old-fashioned to the view of those who are in a post-Christian world. And if Christ lives in us, the things that we do and don't do and the things that we say and don't say will grow increasingly unusual to a non-believing world. And while it may not always rise to hatred, our life in Christ will push against a lost and dying world. We live in a world, after all, that crucified Christ. And we've been left here to reflect who Jesus is and what he has done to those that he is calling to himself. And as we do, his enemies may very well treat us as they treated him. But let me be clear on this. When the Bible talks about what our lives are saying to a watching world, about being salt and light, about being the fragrance of Christ, it's not talking about religion. The things that we might do to try to impress others or the things that we do to try to impress God, it's talking about our abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us making him the why behind what we say and do, letting his life flow in us and through us. So we need to be careful when people think we're out of our mind because we accuse, because we criticize, because we judge. 
You see, Jesus' opposition came from the religious because he himself was not very religious. More than that, it seems that the irreligious are the ones that Jesus had most affection for. And it was the religious that he had the hardest words for. So we need to be careful too when people think that we're out of our mind because we're known for what we're against more than we are known who we are for. We need to be careful when people think we're out of our mind because we live hypocritical lives which demand others live in a way that we do not and cannot live. Rather, my friends, let it be that people think we're out of our mind because we are just crazy for Jesus. Because we love those who do not belong to us and who do not love us because we care for those that no one else seems to care for. We forgive the things that no one else seems to be able to forgive or wants to forgive. We have peace in the light of difficult circumstances. We have hope when things seem hopeless and we radiate light and life to a dark and deadly world. Let that be the reason that people think we're out of our minds. You see, when Jesus walked the earth, people responded to him in different ways. There were those who loved him and followed him closely. There were those who were intrigued by him and sort of followed at a distance. And there were those who were offended by him. And then those who outright hated and rejected him. And so it is today. And so may it be for you and I when people see and hear Christ in us. Some will ask the reason for the hope that we have. Others will mock and ridicule us for those same reasons. We need to be ready to answer all of them with grace and truth, believing that it is Christ whom they will follow or reject, not us. We need to live in such a way that the only thing that offends someone is the gospel. So what about our second question regarding verse 21? Why, then, did Jesus' family and friends think he was out of his mind? I actually don't know that it's entirely clear. Maybe it was because he had left his life as a tradesman to become an itinerant preacher, a traveling preacher. Or maybe it was because of who he was hanging out with, fishermen and tax collectors and sinners. Maybe because of what he did on the Sabbath, that he healed a crippled man's hand, that he picked and ate grain. Maybe it was because of his claims of authority and divinity that he forgave sins and referred to himself as the Lord of the Sabbath and Son of Men. Who does that? And maybe more practically speaking, Jesus' loved ones wanted to protect him from the pressing crowds the opposition of religious leaders or from sullying the family's reputation. Maybe it was a little bit of all of that. But whatever the reason, we learn from Jesus' response that the desire to seize him or take charge of him was outside the will of God. And as such, without realizing it, they themselves became outsiders sitting in the same camp as the scribes and Pharisees, as ones who were trying to avert Jesus from his mission. In verse 22, the story shifts a little bit, 
but the setting remains the same. Verse 22 reads, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. So scribes had come from Jerusalem to observe and to assess Jesus' ministry. Scribes were the official representatives of the religious leaders of the day, and as such, their opinion carried an immense amount of weight to a lot of people. It's important to remember that in verse 6 of this same chapter, Jesus had healed a man with a crippled hand on the Sabbath. And in response, the Pharisees conspired with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. And very likely, this visit from the scribes is the beginning of that very effort. At the very least, they wanted to discredit Jesus in the eyes of those who were hearing him and seeing him. He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons, they cried. See, the scribes were not merely claiming that Jesus was demon-possessed. They had seen demon possession before with its erratic and unexpected behavior, but this accusation was more than that. They were accusing Jesus of being possessed by Satan himself. See, the scribes did not like that Jesus disregarded hallowed traditions, that he would not kowtow to their authority. So they sought to undermine him, and they labeled him an agent of Satan. Think about the implications of such a claim. Jesus' power and his greatness was so exceptional that the scribes could only draw two conclusions. This is either the work of God, or this is the work of Satan. And if it's the work of God, we should follow him. If it's the work of God, we should worship him. But we're not willing to do that. We're not willing to give up our power. We're not willing to not be God. Certainly, this would not be the last time such an accusation was cast upon Jesus. Now listen how Jesus responds to their accusations. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Now it is clear in these verses that Jesus no longer views the religious leaders as honest inquirers. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, Jesus is no longer trying to coax his detractors to faith. Through objective proofs, he's tired of trying to prove himself. He knows the status of their hearts. Instead, Jesus will begin to plant the seeds of the gospel into receptive hearts and allow them to germinate that they might one day bear the fruit of faith. And in this case, Jesus does that very thing through parables. As one commentator put it, Jesus does not simply want to rout them in debate, but to entice them to think together with him 
He, his use of arresting imagery provides a common ground that they can understand and that can enlighten them with the truth if they are willing to open their minds to God. How might the fact that Jesus spoke in parables and illustrations impact the way that you and I talk with others about Jesus, especially when we're opposed? Here's another question to consider. How many Christians do you know that came to faith because they were argued into it? Because someone beat them into submission with reason and logic. I don't know anyone. Now we certainly need to share the truth of Christ and we certainly need to defend our faith. But in doing so, my friends, we need to consider how we might do so with love and respect. Understanding that it is Christ who calls and it is Christ who saves, not you and I. How can Satan cast out Satan, Jesus asked. Everyone knows that members of the same side do not intentionally work against themselves. Football players don't run into the opposing team's end zone. Basketball players don't rebound a ball and then put it back out for two points. Soldiers don't fire their weapons at one another, and Satan doesn't cast out demons. Now, there are a couple of interesting implications that we can draw from these verses. First, the diseases that Jesus heals are tools of Satan. Have you thought about that? Second, the demons that Jesus casts out are the minions of Satan. And finally, and most importantly, there is no disease, no affliction, and no demon of hell, including Satan himself, that is more powerful than God. God and Satan are not equals. And according to verse 26, be encouraged, Satan himself is soon coming to an end. So when you find yourself, my friends, feeling overwhelmed at what you believe to be an attack of Satan, go to the one that cast out Satan and his devils from heaven. The one from whom Satan has to ask permission. And the one whom ultimately will cast Satan into hell forever. Brothers and sisters, that is what verse 27 is saying. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Who do you think the intruder is in this parable? And who is the strong man? At first glance, it may appear as though Satan is the one invading the house and that God is the strong man. But look closer. What has Jesus been doing? Is it not Jesus who has been plundering the house of Satan, this present world? Is it not him? Through healing the sick, through casting out demons and forgiving sins, you see what Satan seeks to gain and fights hard to protect are the very things that Jesus came to strip away and destroy. The one who binds Satan and plunders his house is Jesus Christ. 
What is happening among Jesus' hearers and among us today is not a civil war within Satan's ranks, but a direct onslaught from an outside kingdom, God's kingdom. Do you know what that means for you and I who are in Christ? It means that there is nothing in our lives that must remain under Satan's control. Nothing. Satan has been stripped of his greatest power. His teeth have been dulled. The chains of sin and sickness, death and hell that once bound us all has been broken in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And even if the worst were to happen, the best is yet to come. How is Satan victorious? Now what was being contested in verses 22 through 27 is not the reality of Jesus' power and miracles. They knew they were was real. What they were contesting was their meaning and significance. And make no mistake, to negate and ignore the mighty works of God is sin. Listen to verses 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. There are a handful of verses in scripture that have historically haunted followers of Jesus Christ and caused some level of anxiety, and one of them is found in verse 29. Who is worried about this verse? A sin that will never be forgiven? Have I committed it? Isn't that what we're thinking when you read verses like that? Now certainly, Jesus is warning us against this behavior and he's asking us to take it seriously. Eternal condemnation is at stake after all, but what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and how do we know if we have committed it? To blaspheme means to curse, to revile, to despise or reject. And the Holy Spirit, according to scripture, bore witness to Jesus' identity and to his mission. He empowered Jesus to do all that he did. And he continues that work today in the lives of all who believe and all those who will believe because of him. The Spirit of God convicts us of sin. It convinces us of righteousness. He unites us with Christ. He empowers us to live victoriously over sin and he permanently indwells we who believe. So, to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to persistently curse, revile, despise, or reject the work that he wants to do in us. What he intends to reveal to us and who he longs to point us to. In these verses, the scribes rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus and ascribed credit for that work to Satan. And they were in danger of committing a sin that would not be forgiven because they were cutting themselves off from the only one who could forgive it. So Jesus warned them. Now they had not yet 
committed this sin, otherwise Jesus would not have bothered to warn them about it. And so it is for those of you today who have not yet come to faith in Christ. This warning is still relevant for those who have rejected the Spirit's call to repent from sin and follow Jesus. But it is not, hear me, it is not for those who have responded to the Spirit's work and put their faith in Christ. Do you hear that? So when I first started to worry about this verse as a young believer, I heard a pastor put it this way, and it's just been seared into my head. If you're worried about whether or not you've blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, rest assured, because you worry, you have not. Conversely, if you are not worried, you should be. Friends, there are incredible negative aspects to these verses, but within them, there are incredibly good pieces of news as well. An aspect of these verses that we might gloss over. Did you catch it in verse 28? Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Brothers and sisters, let our attention be on these words. And may we ask God to sear them into our own hearts and minds. Now certainly there is a consequence as we read to living a life that persistently rejects the work and the truth of God. That's what verses 28 through 30 is telling us and warning us against. But in verses 31 through 35, we learn that there is an untold benefit for those who obey rather than reject. So listen to verses 31 and 32. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So very likely, what we are seeing here is Jesus' family intent to carry out what we read about in verse 21. They went out to seize him, for they were saying he was out of his mind. And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 33, and he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. In these three verses, we discover two things. First, Jesus' mother, Mary, did not remain a virgin throughout her whole life. She had more children with her husband Joseph after Jesus was born. It's right here in the word of God. And it was Jesus' biological family in part who were looking to take hold of him. The second thing that we learn is that life with God is not defined by relationships in a biological family. Life in God is not defined by relationships within a biological family family. You see, Jesus had an earthly mother and father. He had earthly brothers and sisters. But we know that it wasn't until after his death and resurrection that they came to understand who he truly was and believe in him. But in this moment, Jesus saw them as outsiders, though they were his family. 
So in verses 13 through 35 of Mark 3, what we see are three distinct groups of people. First, Jesus' biological family and friends who misunderstood him and wanted to take him home. Two, we see scribes and critics who accused Jesus of being an agent of Satan and wanted to take him down. And third, we see his disciples, those who followed Jesus, who do God's will, and in whom he refers to as his true family. And it is the first two groups who stand at a crossroad. Down one road is unbelief and condemnation. Down the other is an invitation to follow Christ as a member of his family, regardless of biology, of race, of class, or gender. Because in the family of God, my friends, obedience is thicker than blood. Friends like Jesus, we all come from at least one family. There is the family that God determined we would be physically born into, whose blood we would share with a biological mother and father, maybe brothers and sisters. And for others of us, blood and biology is not what binds us to the people that we call family. But in either case, like every other good gift God has given on this earth, our earthly families are only a shadow of the reality that is found in Christ. It may be that our family of origin showed us well what it means to be loved and valued and accepted, but in other ways, they may have missed the mark. That is the nature of this fallen world. And that, my friends, is why we need a spiritual family. The kind of family Jesus is talking about in these verses. The kind of family that he came to establish through his death and his resurrection. Brothers and sisters, when we were born again, we came alive to Christ and we became part of a new family. Our true, eternal, spiritual family with a heavenly father who loves, accepts, and values us perfectly. And we were given spiritual brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters who transcend kinship boundaries. Some of whom are part of our physical family, but many of whom are not. So I have a biological father and mother, and I have a biological brother and sister. They're my family of origin, and I love them. But not all of them are part of the family of Jesus. And some of them think I'm out of my mind at times. They think I take this Jesus thing too seriously. And that's okay. Because I'm part of a new family. The family that Jesus Christ made me a part of through his blood. His most precious blood. Now God may, and I hope does, save the members of my biological family through my testimony of his grace in my life, but he might not. And what God is asking me and those of us who are part of his eternal family, those who are his sons and his daughter, those who are co-heirs with Christ, what he's asking us to do is to love him and to love those that he has put around us, including our unbelieving family and friends. 
the very ones who may very well think that you and I are out of our minds. Praying that one day, by his grace, they too would become members of the eternal family that God has welcomed us into. So there are two questions I'd like for you to consider today. First, who do you say Jesus is? That's really what the whole of the book of Mark is asking. Who do you say Jesus is? Listen to the things that he said. Look at the things that he did. Is he the son of God or is he the spawn of Satan? Because as Jonathan reminded us a few weeks ago, according to C.S. Lewis, those are really only the two options. He's God, he's a lunatic, or he's a liar, but he's nothing else. The second question follows suit. If he is the son of God, will you follow him as a member of his true family? Friends, the invitation to follow Jesus and become part of his family is the greatest invitation given to man. And if you haven't accepted Christ's invitation but think you might want to, realize that it is the Holy Spirit who is wooing you. It is he who will reveal Jesus to you. And understand that there is a heavenly father waiting to receive you as a son and as a daughter. And brothers and sisters, to walk alongside until he returns. And if you have accepted that invitation, praise God for it. Be reminded of what he has done and who you are in him. And extend that same invitation to others with grace and with truth. Inviting those within your spiritual family to get to know, love, and enjoy members of your physical family. And vice versa. Because, my friends, the family of God needs fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters too. Let's pray. Our Lord God, you have commanded us to believe in Jesus, that we would run to no other refuge and wash in no other fountain, build on no other foundation, receive fullness from no other, and rest in no other relief. His water and blood were not severed in their flow at the cross. May they never be separated in our faith and experiences. May we be equally convinced of the guilt and pollution of sin, feel our need of a prince and savior, implore from him repentance as well as forgiveness. May we love holiness and be pure in heart, having the mind of Jesus, and may we tread in his steps. Let us not be at our own disposal, but rejoice that we are under the care of one who is too wise to err, too kind to injure, and too tender to crush. May we scandalize no one by our temper and conduct, but recommend and endear Christ to all around, to bestow good to everyone as circumstances allow and decline no opportunity to be useful. Grant that we may value what you have provided, not as a means of pride and luxury, but as a means of our support and stewardship. And Lord, help us to guide our affections with discretion, to owe no one anything, to be able to give to him that is in need, 
and to feel it our duty and pleasure to be merciful and forgiving that we might show the world the likeness of Jesus. Amen.